Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. Welcome to Dietitian to Dietitian, a new series brought to you by Dietitian Connection. Dietitian to Dietitian is hosted by the Today Show USA nutrition and health expert, Joy Bauer, where she delves into different ideas and perspectives on some of the hottest topics in dietetics with two expert dietitian guests. There are so many confusing, compelling and intriguing topics in the world of nutrition. And our goal at Dietitian Connection is to highlight and provide you with different perspectives and ideas on topical issues to keep you in the know, to inspire you, and ultimately to help you become the very best registered dietitian you can be. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Dietitian to Dietitian. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Joy Bauer, and I am super excited to be back hosting Dietitian Connections Accredited Dietitian to Dietitian web event series. And boy, I am happy to finally be able to do this brilliant conversation with with our two experts. We have had one COVID case after another, and I'm happy to report everybody is healthy, (laughs) finally, and I hope that you are all healthy too. And thank you for being forgiving and flexible with um, the rescheduling that we've had to do. It's like the new normal, I know. Um, I also want to extend a very, very big thank you to today's sponsor for this event, Fresh Avocados, Love One Today, which is a leading source of the healthiest reasons and tastiest ways to enjoy fresh avocados. Clients and, of course, us healthcare providers love avocados because they're satisfying and they're delicious. But, of course, the benefits don't stop there. And you can learn about the relationship between avocados, weight, and diet quality and download your free science-based resources at loveonetoday.com slash weight management. Now, before we get started on today's topic, do macronutrients matter for weight management? We just have a couple of quick housekeeping items. First, there's definitely going to be time for questions from the audience during today's conversation, but I want to let you know what we're going to cover. We're going to cover the ever-changing research on dietary patterns for weight management, the notion that one size does not fit all when it comes to the scale, and the tactics that are useful in helping patients adapt and succeed with their culture in mind. But that being said, if there's something that we don't cover that you want to know about, please, please add your questions to the Q&A box, not the chat box. So questions go in the Q&A box. And additionally, you're going to be able to see the questions that other members of the audience have submitted, and you can upvote their question if you'd also like to hear it. And that's really important for us because it alerts us to the most popular questions, the questions that you're most curious about. Second, if you have any tech issues, and hopefully you won't, please message the Dietitian Connection team through the chat box. So the questions are in the Q&A box, but the technical issues go in the chat box. And finally, there will be a recording available after the session. So if for any reason you want to see it again, or if you have to walk away, you're going to get an email shortly after the webinar with details about the recording and how to obtain your continuing education certificate. And now to introduce our wonderful guests. First up, it is my sheer pleasure to introduce Dr. Amy Goss. Amy is an assistant professor of nutrition sciences at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and a registered dietitian. She's also the assistant director of the Metabolism Core of the Nutrition Obesity Research Center with expertise in conducting randomized clinical trials to examine the effects of diet quality and macronutrient composition on risk factors of chronic metabolic diseases. The goal of Amy's research is to identify effective, sustainable, and non-invasive dietary means of preventing and reversing disease with metabolic origins. Dr. Goss specializes in MRI techniques for the assessment of fat distribution and organ lipid content. 
And Amy recently received a $3 million NIH grant to conduct a controlled feeding study aimed at improving outcomes in children with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Welcome, Amy. (laughs) Hi, Joy. Thank you so much for having me. You got it. And I'm super uh, grateful and happy that you're healthy. (laughs) Yes, thank you. (laughs) Next up, Christine Tenekian. Christine is a dietitian clinician and certified health and wellness coach at Duke Lifestyle and Weight Management Center, which is formerly known as Duke Diet and Fitness Center. It's the only residential style weight loss program within an academic medical center. And, And it's been in existence from 1970 to present, I, I, I would guess. I have 2020 when it was the, under the other name, but um, you know, right. it's, it's uh, strong and uh, thriving. Christine has been practicing in the weight management field since 2007. She is also a certified personal trainer with the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Outside of work, Christine's mantra is enjoy what you want in moderation and mindfulness and always consider the resources and costs to get the food to your plate. Welcome, Christine. Thank you, Joy. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. It's so nice to have you both. And again, like, thank you the health gods (laughs) for bringing everybody together. And it's worthwhile noting that our speakers today each bring a very unique viewpoint based on their respective patient populations. Christine's patient population encompasses a wide variety of races and cultures and consists of patients who are 18 years of age and older, with most being clinically obese and having comorbidities such as prediabetes, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, PCOS, and more. And Amy's patient population includes both adult and pediatric patients who also have chronic diseases such as type 2 diabetes, obesity, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and PCOS. And now I'm going to jump into the questions. Are you ladies ready to chat? Absolutely. Ready. Excellent. So I'm going to start with Amy, and I'm going to ask, when it comes to counseling on weight loss and weight maintenance, does the research favor one dietary pattern over the other? Yeah, that is such a great question. And it's, it's such a big question too, right? So I think um, the short answer to that is that for some people, yes, um, macronutrients do matter for weight loss and weight loss maintenance. And for other people, maybe not. Um, and this really, you know, if we're talking about what long-term studies have shown us, right, it's... Um, Nine times out of 10, when you put two diets head to head, whether it's like a low fat diet or a carbohydrate restricted diet for weight loss in the long term, like over a year or longer, oftentimes there is no significant difference between the groups and weight loss. Um, And that's been shown again, like I said, like in multiple studies. Um, But what we're sort of missing there, and this sort of relates back to the research that we do here at UAB and in our lab. when we're just looking at the, if we're just asking the question about weight loss, then we're missing a lot of information about how macronutrients are in fact affecting health. Um, and a lot of times it's not necessarily, when it comes to metabolic health, it's not necessarily about like body weight or adiposity per se, but where adiposity is located. So um, for instance, in our lab, we do, we've done a lot of research doing controlled feeding studies, looking at um, diets that are either carbohydrate restricted with a low glycemic load um, or fat restricted with a higher glycemic load. And in our controlled feeding studies, we um, give a energy level that's weight maintaining. So we're specifically asking the question in the absence of weight loss, how are macronutrients affecting body fat distribution, and also metabolic health. So how how are macronutrients affecting things like insulin sensitivity and um, insulin secretion and things like that? So, you know, in in some of these longer-term studies where they're just looking at like loss of body fat alone, total body fat or total weight, um, what you see in these populations that lose where you don't see the differences in weight loss there's a lot of variability in response, right? So some individuals to a carbohydrate restricted diet will lose a lot of body fat mass. Others lose very little or sometimes gain weight on that dietary approach. 
Um, on the other hand, in a diet that's fat restricted, you'll see people that lose a lot of body weight and then others that don't. Um, so it's sort of this, this idea that they're not, that's not a one size fits all, right? It's what, like we say over and over again, it's about figuring out which diet is most appropriate to someone based on their genotype and also their metabolic phenotype. Um, so for instance, uh, we assume that individuals that don't lose weight on a specific diet in a research study, we think, oh, well, they clearly weren't adhering to that diet. But I don't think that can necessarily be assumed because it could be that, in fact, that diet is not appropriate for that person's metabolic phenotype. And I'll give an example of this. So one of the factors that we think about when thinking about someone's metabolic response to food is insulin secretion, right? So um, like, for instance, in our study, we'll have two individuals, um, same body size, give them the exact same glucose bolus. One individual will not secrete that much insulin. The other individual will secrete the exact same bolus of glucose five times that amount of insulin. And what, what do we know about insulin, right? So insulin is very lipogenic. Um, it stimulates fat deposition. It inhibits fat from being mobilized and oxidized. Um, so it's, it's promoting body fat deposition in a lot of people. So macronutrients can definitely play a role in how someone is losing weight in response to diet um, and that sort of thing. So, but going back to our studies, so what we found when we do not energy restrict our participants and we place them on a low glycemic carbohydrate restricted diet compared to a high glycemic diet, we find that um, in multiple studies that we get selective depletion of what we would consider metabolically harmful adipose tissue depots, which would be the visceral cavity, right? So the fat around the organs underneath that abdominal wall and considered the intra-abdominal visceral cavity. We find depletion of that in the absence of weight loss. We found depletion of intramuscular adipose tissue that's within the skeletal muscle that's been linked to insulin resistance at the skeletal muscle. Um, and then we've also done work in fatty liver and in the pancreas, looking at how diet macronutrient compositions can sort of deplete these ectopic lipid stores in the absence of weight loss. So you can kind of think of it as like improving your metabolic health by sort of remodeling where your body is depositing lipid in response to these different macronutrient diets. So that sort of like, so like I said, the short answer is with weight loss, there may, it may not make a huge difference, but if we look beyond body weight, right, at different how diets are affecting metabolism in different people, then micronutrients may in fact play a really large role in that. Um, and then also I think in terms of weight maintenance, um, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done to figure out how we can keep people, um, once they lose weight in a weight maintenance condition, like keep the weight off. So I think there's still a lot of unknown. A, a big part of weight regain comes to whether um, during weight loss is the diet affecting your metabolism in a way to where your energy expenditure is dropping, you will have lost lean mass. All of these things can put you at risk of weight regain. Um, what's your appetite? How is your diet affecting appetite regulating hormones and how your brain is sensing the, those hormones can all play a role in how you are able to maintain weight loss. So it's a very complicated question mm -hmm. that I think there's still some, a lot of emerging research on how, how we can help best help patients do that. And it's so fascinating. And it sounds like you're really in the weeds and in the midst of the research that us dietitians will be following in the years to come. Uh, super exciting. Wow. Thank you for that. And now, Christine, like from a practicality standpoint, do you find that patients are able to actually understand and use macronutrient guidelines as effectively as, let's say, calories? Because it could get a little bit complicated. We all know people. We all know those people that you know track their macros, but it's not necessarily an easy thing to actually do. Yes, that's a great question, Joy. And we do, I am seeing a lot more folks interested in macros, as you point out, without often a lot of understanding about what the macronutrients are. So of course, some basic education about that 
is important. I also want to say, though, and um, as I was listening to Dr. Goss speak, it was really interesting to hear uh, the points that she made about the different diets and benefits people can get outside of weight loss, because I feel that's validated from, from my standpoint, based on what my patients tell me. Some patients say they just feel like they can't handle carbs. They don't do well. They don't feel well. They feel hungrier when they eat certain types of carbs. And I think that what she's experiencing from a research side is what we're hearing patients say, but they, they're experiencing it and they don't really have the words to explain it yet. And we as providers need to listen and be open to the fact that, yeah, that there's probably something there and we can help them to find a program that works. Now, whether you focus specifically on macronutrient counting I think really depends on the patient education level. It's, as we know, it's challenging to count macronutrients. It's even challenging for us to try to develop meal plans that have specific balances of macronutrients. It takes a lot of time. And I, I know that as a clinician, I struggle with that because I have a certain amount of time with a patient, but the amount of time that I have without the patient to work on a meal plan separate from my interaction with them is extremely limited and honestly not realistic. So when I'm working on planning with a patient, I try to be as general as possible um, so that we don't get too much into those, those weeds. If they want to know how many grams of everything, what are the percentages, I will give them that information um, and then recommend to them some tracking, you know, software that they can then use mm -hmm. to help themselves understand where are their macronutrients now as they're what they're currently eating and maybe what adjustments could they make to get closer to what we would recommend for them. Um, but I often also just focus on food groups as a way to get closer to those macronutrients. Mm -hmm. And we know that focus on the types of foods can be more useful and more practical um, as opposed to quantifying. Um, I often, for example, focus on, hey, let's make sure you get enough protein throughout the day. I feel like that protein focus helps a lot of folks um, really um, who aren't getting that get a better balance and get better weight loss and better satiety. So balancing out carbs with protein as opposed to without. Um, so that's where I would stand on the macronutrient question. Okay. And it makes good sense. And I like that, you know, without having to get into the weeds with them, your protein strategy, you know, giving them ample protein with each of the meals, which I would assume would automatically pull back on some of the carbs and you're probably going out of your way to add fat as well, which then gets them to where you want them to be somewhat without having to count numbers. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's so tricky. Um, mm -hmm. And speaking of fat, I'm going to turn over to Amy. I, I have so many questions on fat. And, and I guess the, the, the overwhelming question that I have is how do good and bad fats impact weight and overall health? And I, and I want to hear about both, not just weight. And I like that you talked about in your research that like the overwhelming positive response is with health, because I think that's the direction that everybody's going in these days. Everybody will constantly want to, or most, a lot of people will choose to lose weight. And a lot of metabolic issues will improve as people lose weight. But I love the fact that you're seeing phenomenal benefit in the health uh, direction without even the weight loss. That's pretty huge. Yeah, that's, it's kind of a really exciting thing too, because with our participants, especially, you know, I do research on kids too, being able to not even to tell the parents and the child, this is not a weight loss study, right? We are specifically focusing on how these foods are affecting your specific condition, your metabolic health. It doesn't have to do with the body weight. That's not something we're going to discuss even. I think that's a really empowering thing that mm -hmm. you can, a tool you can give parents, you know, in, in the way you approach it with, with children and adolescents. Um, but back to the fat question too, uh, you know, it's overall context of the diet. When it comes to dietary fat, like with everything, context matters, right? So 
Um, if you're eating what we would consider like a typical American diet, I think certain types of fat could be pretty harmful in terms of um, risk factors for different things like heart disease and, and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. What we found in some of our research, when we have, um, we've done research with low glycemic load, low glycemic index, ketogenic, very low carbohydrate ketogenic diets. Um, when you decrease the carbohydrates and increase the fat, um, it, it can have an overall benefit for metabolism and for lipids and all those things. Um, for instance, I'll give, use the ketogenic diet as an example. When carbohydrates are low, and if you're attempting to do a ketogenic diet, it's, it's not a high-protein diet, right? So it's, it's technically a moderate protein diet. So the rest of your calories do have to come from fat. But in that context, what we find in our studies is that even if saturated fat is higher than what we typically see recommended, um, obviously um, all the unsaturated fatty acids, they're going to be higher as well, but we can still see benefits in terms of HDL cholesterol, triglycerides, LDL, all these things do improve in our studies when we provide a a higher fat diet. Um, And Jeff Bullock's work in his lab, he's at Ohio State, He's done this type of work too and looked at the effects of eating higher saturated fat in the context of very low carbohydrate diets. And they found that it doesn't actually, when you eat the higher saturated fat, it doesn't result in a higher circulating saturated fatty acids um, because it's kind of thought that those are essentially like readily oxidized in the liver when you're, you know, when your insulin's pretty low and you're not consuming a lot of carbohydrates. So in that context, you can consume higher fat. However, you know, if you're combining a high fat intake with a high sugar, high glycemic, high processed food intake, that's when we really see some detrimental stuff. So, so kind of in the lower carbohydrate, in our studies, we recommend patients try to get fats from a variety of sources with a focus on plant fats. So we're talking avocados, fatty fruit, olives, olive oil, like focusing on plant sources, but then also encouraging them not to be scared of eating other saturated fat sources. Um, so yeah, so that's sort of, um, again, the context of the overall diet, I think is super important. Interesting. Okay. And so you are though pushing more of like the healthy fats, but they should not be afraid and they can be somewhat liberal again, if it's a low carb diet and a higher fat. So here's the other question is knowing that, you know, fats as dietitians, you know, we have always learned that fats are very, very calorically dense. So with your new research, are you finding that we have much more leeway and we can be more liberal with fat calories if somebody is specifically trying to lose weight? Yes. So in some of our studies, like in the context of weight loss, um, you know, if you are restricting carbohydrates, Increasing the fat can increase fat oxidation, particularly in the liver, pretty dramatically, right? But that's the goal of weight loss is you want to oxidize body fat, not only the fat you're eating, but also body fat. So the idea behind the carbohydrate restriction is that when you limit the carbohydrates and insulin is low, that is permitting your body to sort of mobilize its body fat stores um, and oxidize and burn that on top of the fat you're actually consuming in the diet. Um, so, and I mean, another part of that too, is when you're incorporating the higher fat content, patients do find it to be pretty satiating. Um, they sort of, without telling them to calorically restrict, they end up calorically restricting on their own because of that very fact. So it can be a very appealing approach to weight loss for many people. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's a, a great question. Okay. And so we have, I, I don't want to ignore, we have a lot of questions that are coming in and folks are asking for an ideal. I realize it's not a one size fits all plan, but do you have some sort of a, a ballpark ratio? And maybe I, I'm not sure who wants to answer this question of what's the macronutrient breakdown and ratio would be. So not, I guess this would not necessarily be like a super low carb keto like, but what would, what should be, we, we be aiming for? And are there any apps to help patients, clients track their macros if, if they should want to? Are you asking about, is there an ideal ratio during, for a low carb diet or an ideal ratio 
overall? So I, I would say overall, <laughs> like before you get to know people's specific responses and markers, do you have any ratio that you roughly start with when working with patients? And I'm interested to hear the app question also. Um, and again, I realize most people are not going to want to track their macros, but um, it could be helpful to know if you, you like any of the products that are out there. Well, um, I'll jump in just quick um, and say that I tend to start with, let's make sure protein is adequate first. And then we follow up with, okay, what kind of carb and fat ratio do we want after we've ensured we have a baseline I would say moderate protein intake. And I tend to use, um, I learned years ago in a, in a training from the American Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, then the Dietetic Association, um, that a minimum goal for during weight loss of protein is 70 grams daily. And we used that for many years when I was doing the residential program at Duke Diet and Fitness Center. Um, we use that as a baseline, a minimum for every single person that walked in the door. And we always found that they weren't getting that number. They tended to be hungrier. And as soon as we corrected it, no matter what kind of fat or carb ratio they were following, it tended to fix the problem. So that's kind of a, the, the starting point for me is let's get that 70 grams of protein across the board, no matter what type of calorie amount the person's following. After that, if they're eating more calories or if they're a larger person, we might increase. Um, so, you know, it, it, depending on how many calories you're getting or how big the person is, um, it could be a range of like 20% to maybe 30% mm -hmm. of calories from protein. But I also will often use um, anywhere from 0.5 to 0.8 grams per pound of healthy body weight. Um, so healthy body weight being maybe what their weight would be if their BMI was between 25 and 28, for mm -hmm. example. So something realistic, not too low, but not too high either. So, you know, and there, there's some different resources that I cited in the notes previously that maybe we can share with folks, but um it seems to work well for people when we start there and then let's work with the carbs and fat. You know, if somebody wants to be lower carb, we take the remainder of whatever calories are and we, we can play with that. Um, so I'd be curious to hear what Dr. What Dr. Goss has to say about that approach. Yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree with everything you said. And I think, I don't, I don't, I can't, I don't think there's just one ideal you know, macronutrient distribution, um, speaking generally, I think, you know, a lot of that depends on what the goal is, right? So, you know, for someone in our experience with type two diabetes or fatty liver disease, um, you know, their carbohydrate intake perhaps needs to be much lower if the goal is to reverse their condition entirely. Um, but, you know, if, if the goal is something else, then the, the macronutrient distribution could be very different. And, you know, I think like at this point where the research is and like clinically as dietitians, sometimes we do have to play a guessing game with this, you know, to what, to figure out what the ideal distribution is for our particular patient, um, or even for like, yeah, for clinically for a patient. And, that is something that science just isn't there yet to make it easier for us to sort of collect these variables about a person and say, okay, this is clearly your ideal diet to decrease your risk of disease to the greatest extent we possibly can. Um, but what's encouraging about that is it's not all the science is trying to get there. You know, the NIH has devoted a lot of money to a study trying to figure out this very question. Um, sort of the point is to collect so many variables about a lot of different people um, to develop an algorithm to make it sort of take the guesswork out of that very thing. So I think that's that's encouraging at least um, that, that science is sort of trying to get there. Um, Won't that be helpful? Wow. Yeah. And also, yeah. I, I, and I would imagine too, you know, it's it's sort of a mixture of science and real life because then you have your client and what they are actually able to follow through with. 
So, you know, we have our dream ranges from a medical standpoint, and then we sort of work with what's manageable and realistic. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. And that's just probably the most important thing. One of the most important things to consider is what's realistic and doable for the patient. Um, You know, sometimes people, um, you know, have different (laughs) reasons that they wouldn't be able to achieve a certain macronutrient breakdown. And maybe we are just flexible with that. Well, Christine, this actually leads me to my next question for you, because what I, what I wanted to ask you is specifically for patients who may be accustomed to an eating style dictated by tradition, by their cultural background, socioeconomic issues. Do you have any tricks or strategies in, and, or ways that you're able to sort of connect with them and help them to, you know, create and stay with a successful weight loss journey or health oriented journey? Right. That's a great question. I can say if, if, you know, if the best trick or strategy that I've got up my sleeve is motivational interviewing. So listening to the patient, really taking the time to understand where they are, what are all of their special circumstances, what is important to them when it comes to food and when it comes to their culture, what do they really want to keep? And what might they be okay with letting go of? And we never assume that for one particular culture, it's going to be one thing or another. You know, I've talked to some folks from Southeast Asian cultures who really want to keep their rice and some of them don't care about it. So it's, it's person to person. It's not dictated just by the culture. So I never assume that if a person of a particular color race area of the country walks into my door that they're going to have certain preferences. We always need to listen to them. Once you feel like you have a good understanding, then it's starting to ask questions about what do they already know about how their diet is impacting their weight or impacting their health? What do they already understand about macronutrients or insulin? What sorts of disease processes do we already know they have? Do they have known insulin resistance? Do they know how the carbs impact them? Do they know what has carbs? So lots of asking questions to determine what's this person's level of understanding, what's important to them and where are they willing to go? And so then of course, once you know that, having that discussion. Okay. How is your diet impacting your health? What are the important pieces that we could um, try to modify to have some important changes, explaining what those changes could be. If we can tell them insulin makes you hungrier, insulin makes it harder to lose weight. If we can slow down your insulin activity by modifying your diet, it will make a big difference for you. That is the kind of thing that really gets patients to listen and maybe be open to some of these modifications that we know might be useful, just mm-hmm. explaining that process to them. Um, and so once, and once you have them motivated, this is, this is probably a very tough question to answer, but any, any advice or tips that you can toss out would be so helpful. So you have your patient and you finally you, you educate them on the science piece and you have them super, super motivated, but how can we help patients, clients succeed with their weight loss goals when they may only have access to, or the means to rely on certain types of foods, um, certain fast food restaurants, things like that. It's always so heartbreaking and agonizing. It's, it's definitely agonizing. And I have several patients who are in those kinds of situations um, you know, for a variety of reasons, a variety of circumstances, and it is difficult. So your, your first step is to, you know, if they have limited means really assess what are the specific barriers is the barrier simply money. Is it cost or is the barrier access to a good kitchen for food preparation is the barrier, their working situation where they can't bring food in because they don't have access to a fridge. So they need shelf stable food options that they can bring in. So if you know as many specifics as possible as to what is making it more difficult for that particular patient, 
then you'll be more easily able to tailor the suggestions. So, you know, I have a patient who has 10 kids. She has, so clearly money is going to be a challenge for anyone with 10 children. She has a job as a cleaning person and she doesn't have access to a fridge during the day. And she doesn't usually eat anything at lunchtime. So we've been talking about what are some simple, affordable from Walmart, you know, shelf stable options that she could bring in a bag to have during her, she does get a break. So during her break, that would give her some balance. If the issue is, okay, there's not enough money. We need more access to food. Knowing what are the avenues in your area for food access, what kinds of food pantries are available, you know, create a resource list that you can give to people. Students are great for helping us create these sorts of resource, resource lists. I just had somebody create one for me. So I have an idea of where I can send people. So that kind of thing, just knowing the specifics of what is a, what are the barriers. Great, great. Um, I have a couple more questions that I want to ask you. We have so many great questions coming in, and I'm I'm going to try to get to as many as I can. But I I one question that I wanted to ask. Well, two questions I want to ask you, Amy. One is, you know, we're talking about. Um, reversing diseases or moving in positive directions when people do already have these um, metabolic conditions. Do you feel like there's going to be a time or are you already starting to research sort of getting ahead of it and looking at people who might or who are currently healthy might be predisposed, manipulating the macronutrients and seeing positive results so, so in other words, almost preventing these issues from actually even getting started. Yeah, and that's that's a great question. And you know what I can say is that we we have done a few feeding studies where um, we've really looked at differences in macronutrients. It's sort of what I spoke to earlier, um, where we've done like a moderately carbohydrate restricted diet, which is which was close to forty percent carb, which is by no means very low or low in any way, um, which was low glycemic load. So really altering the types of carbohydrates that were included in that research plan compared to a high glycemic, slightly higher carbohydrate diet. So the low one was 40%, the higher one was 55. So they're pretty close in terms of total carbohydrates. The glycemic load of those carbohydrates was different. Um, and we tested the in a controlled feeding study for 16 weeks in relatively healthy adults with either overweight or obesity. And what we found in that study was that with the low glycemic load diet, um, there was that depletion of visceral fat. So in eight weeks, those participants lost about, I want to say on average, 11 to 15% of their visceral fat, which is pretty impressive, mm-hmm. you know, in the absence again of significant weight loss. Um, suggesting that overall that is decreasing their risk of metabolic disease, right? Decreasing their risk of type 2 diabetes, fatty liver disease, because visceral fat tends to go hand in hand with liver fat. Um, So yeah, I think there are some promising, I think, you know, I think a low glycemic low diet in general is healthy for anybody. Um, And it, it can work to possibly prevent progression to type two diabetes, but that's, you know, I think overall improvements in diet quality period can in a sense, reduce risk of metabolic disease, right? Mm-hmm. So it may not even necessarily be a pers- about the macronutrients per se, but more about the overall diet quality for healthy individuals to prevent disease. Okay. Mind and if I jump you- in here, Joy, for a second? I just, just want to validate what, what Amy is saying, because I, from my perspective in the clinic, I feel like I see a lot of people who say, well, my stomach is shrinking, but the scale isn't changing that much and they're still frustrated. So that gives us something that we can say, well, the reason that might be happening is because of what you just said, you're losing that visceral fat, which is dangerous and problematic. And even in the absence of that number moving on the scale, you're going to see benefit from that. So I think these are things that we can use to help patients keep going 
when the scale doesn't do what they want it to do. That's just so, that's one of the biggest challenges I have in treating people who want weight loss when the scale doesn't move, what else can we tell them that they can celebrate? Right. It's those non-scale victories and health is the huge one. I feel like health and energy and comfortability are um, so much more important and bigger and than the, than the number on the scale. And our job as counselors is to really communicate that and keep them energized and excited and motivated um, for sure. And one, one diet that I do want to ask you guys about is the Mediterranean diet, because I mean, it's thrown around and touted as, you know, the absolute best diet. But it's very, very loose in terms of guidelines. So, Amy, like, how how do you feel about your research and macronutrient breakdown, and just in general, the Mediterranean diet? Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's there's plenty of research. Like you said, it's there's not a very strict definition in terms of what a Mediterranean diet is. So, in terms of how it's researched, every study that looks at it defines it a little differently, and maybe includes different foods in that approach. Um, but in general, like, I think it's a high quality diet and for the average person, it's going to be a very, it probably is a beneficial way to eat depending on how you approach it. Right. It's including lots of healthy fats and it's including, um, lots of whole food sources. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it can be done in so many different ways, um, that, but in general, like generally speaking, it's it's definitely a, a great way of eating. So, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna take some questions um, because so, so many are coming in, and I'm really afraid that we're gonna run out of time. So, um, somebody asked a question about fructose. So, I want to go over to this. Um, let me find this. Um, so this is for either Amy or Christine. What are you seeing with regard to body fat, metabolic response, glycemia, and glycemic and liver health for diets with higher fructose intake? Could be from added sugars like sucrose, but also from fresh fruits and fruit juices in general. Um, I recently saw a recommendation to limit fructose intake to 25 grams per day. Great question. We have a bunch on fructose, so I'm glad that we bought this up. Go ahead, Amy. You can take that one. Tackle this one. Okay. (laughs) Um, I so fructose is very interesting to me because it is. You can think of it. I you know it. It doesn't necessarily stimulate insulin secretion, but it's um, metabolized in the liver, similar to alcohol. So it can promote fatty liver in the way it stimulates what we call de novo lipogenesis, right? So manufacturing lipid in the liver that can be stored when fat oxidation is limited. So in our study, so in our fatty liver study, um, in our kids study, we tried to limit. So we were testing a moderately carbohydrate restricted diet, which was about hundred grams of carb per day compared to a fat restricted diet. However, both of these diets were quote unquote high quality diets. So we tried to, the lower carbs arm was free of added sugar. We tried to also keep added sugar really low in the fat restricted arm. Um, and in the pilot study we had, so we just got the larger grant funded, but in the pilot study that we published, both groups lost some liver fat the lower carb group lost lost more and we had more adolescents achieve what we consider total reversal of fatty liver disease. So um, I really think that fructose and sucrose, so sugar, high added sugars, sugar sweetened beverages, all of these things can be very, very lipogenic in the liver and contribute to fatty liver disease for sure. It's interesting to me that, that you were able to have the adolescents or the younger pediatric patients adhere to, to a diet like that because it's tough. It's tough. Yes. We were honestly a little shocked too, that we got such good results. I mean, it's not easy to stick to part of it. We provided food groceries to the entire family. Um, I feel like that had a big part of why we were able to see the results because the entire family was eating whichever diet they were randomized to they had that family support system where the whole family was expected to eat it too. Um, and I think that is a, 
an important piece to this is, you know, we treat, we need to treat these diseases like they're family diseases because this person's a part of a unit of a family. And if the whole family is not supportive and on board and contributing to the treatment of the adolescent condition, then I don't think we're going to see the results that that we want. So, so yeah, we, we were really excited about that pilot study and we're hopeful for this larger trial too. um, That's going to be longer term to see similar, similar findings. Well, you're going to have to come back and tell us all about it. Well, I'd love to. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to ask a question from Kim, um, who asks if you can comment on coconut and palm oil and the impact on health. And actually, this specific question came in from a lot of people. So we are interested to know about palm oil and coconut oil. I'm curious what Amy has to say about this one too, because I also get that question and I, you know, it's, it's, I'm always uncertain, um, whether it has, I think it has maybe less effect on the LDL cholesterol than animal fats, but some studies show that it does. And I guess also there's different types of coconut oil too. So they're not all created equal. And I would assume we would react a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the thing about coconut oil, it is part medium chain and part saturated. Like it's kind of a mix of those. And I think, you know, not everyone has improvements in lipid. If they're eating like a very low carbohydrate diet, that's higher in saturated fat. They can, in fact, have negative impacts on LDL and that and small particle LDL and that sort of thing. Um, you know, it's one of these things where like some people are fine with it and it, it doesn't increase their cholesterol, um, their LDL actually. And some people do have an adverse response. So it's something that probably needs to be monitored. But the unique thing about the medium chain triglyceride and coconut oil is that it's like it's digested differently. It goes straight to the liver and is oxidized. It's not necessarily stored in the same way. So people can sort of enhance ketosis if they're trying to achieve that a really high level of fat oxidation, like medium chain triglycerides can be beneficial for that. Um, But again, MCT oil and coconut oil are two different things because coconut oil does have saturated fat too. Um, So it's it's sort of one of those things, like if a participant's interested in using it, it may be worth like monitoring cholesterol responses to that. Um, You know, so it's kind of like, again, there's going to be a lot of individual variability in response to that. You feel like, and this is, this is probably for you, Christine, it's a good idea to say, you know, use it as an accent oil, but not necessarily your primary oil. I do. And I, I do say that very thing. Often I say, look, coconut oil is delicious. You know, it can really enhance the flavor of your food and you could use it in, in a combination of with, with another oil as opposed to hundred percent or use it on occasion. I also, though, I do warn people about these high, these, they're coming out everywhere, highly processed, quote, keto-friendly diet foods that are made with more of the the palm and the coconut and other, you know, processed saturated fats and that just have all these sweeteners and they're just a little too easy to consume. And I have the same concerns about that as I would with low fat junk food that we saw back in the, in the nineties when, when low fat diets were popular. So I always warn people about just generally eat more whole foods. Even if you're eating keto, try to eat more of those whole unprocessed foods and not all the processed stuff. Cause that's where you see the palm oil. You're not cooking with palm oil. Right. right? So I do warn people on that point very specifically. And so Christine, who, who do you think is the right population for a keto like diet? That's a great question. And I, you know, it's it's a very loaded question, but I have settled in and I, I work with a doctor who um, is a big researcher on ketogenic diets. And so I've learned a lot of what I've done from him and I've, I've been um, identifying key points that I try to sort of tick off in my head as I'm doing an assessment with a patient. So I feel like one of the things that seems to come 
time after time, if the patient has a lot of excess weight to lose, they're really hesitant about surgery, or for some reason, they're not a candidate for surgery, and or they're very limited in mobility. Um, they're probably going to get a bit of a better response from a diet like that um, as compared to a standard sort of make your modifications and follow a calorie restricted diet. Um, so that's one thing that um, I do watch for. If a patient um, tends to like to follow directives based on foods that are quote allowed and foods that are not allowed. So they like, they like rules, perhaps they like simplicity and the low carb keto diet is even though it's not easy to follow, it's relatively simple in terms mm -hmm. of the instructions. You eat this, you don't eat this. So if they like that and they want to follow it, at least for a certain period of time, that's another point. If a person eats out frequently, a lot of people find that eating out is more convenient for them for whatever reason. They're traveling frequently. They don't have time to prepare food. Though there are tons of tempting high carb foods in restaurants, in most restaurant situations, and I say most because I know not every place has low carb choices, you will be able to find a cooked protein with fat in it because the restaurants like to use fat and non-starchy vegetables with fat in them, mm. whether it's a salad or cooked vegetables. So it's a relatively easy way to guide people on eating in a restaurant if they're relying on that primarily. So those are some of the things. And then of course the metabolic things, insulin resistance, diabetes, PCOS, um, these tens of situations tend to, you know, bode well for low carb. If somebody has an autoimmune condition, even that can help. If they have a lot of gas bloating, often less carbs will help resolve that as well. So I had one patient who came in just with uncontrollable bloating and he was just so frustrated. He also wanted to lose some weight. And I said, and he ate out and traveled all the time. I said, you know, why don't we try this? He didn't have a lot of weight to lose, but he had the gas and bloating and the traveling and he hated cooking and, and he's doing great. He doesn't follow hundred percent keto all the time, but he realized that his gut just felt so much better when he got rid of most of the carbs. So, so in, in patients that are following a low carb eating style, how do you ensure that they're still getting the nutrients that they, that they might not be getting from foods that are omitted from the plan, such as whole grains and plant-based proteins, mm -hmm. things like that fiber, certain vitamins and minerals. Yeah. Well, we definitely, I definitely have people take a multivitamin, first of all, um, whether it's iron containing or not depends on, you know, man versus woman, how much meat that they're eating, but a, a basic multivitamin certainly recommended for everyone. A fiber supplement is an option for folks, depending on whether they get constipated, whether they just feel like they want to have it for additional fiber, how many vegetables they tend to eat naturally. Some people eat less, some people eat plenty right. to get all of their fiber requirements. So those okay. are the two things I recommend most often. Great. Um, so I'm going to get to, this is a great question for Amy. Do you look at, or have you looked at the effects of the gut microbiome with the, with different macronutrients? Yeah, I myself have not, I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself an expert in the microbiome. Um, but I mean, I, I have seen some work related to that, but probably not enough to speak too much to it. Okay. That's interesting. And thank you, Amy. The, Amy yeah. asked a question to Amy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, your, the gut microbiome does respond to macronutrients though. I know that like it, you can sort of, um, you know, encourage the good bacteria with the way you're eating versus not, but I, you know, I can't, that's as far as much I can say. Right. <laughs> so. it, it's an interesting question because I think a lot of like the prebiotics are within the plant-based carbs. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, more to come on that. And here's, here's a question. In regards to patients who yo-yo diet back and forth from keto-like low-carb plants to a more standardized American diet, how does the research show that it impacts on health? 
Mm. And, yeah, and that goes back to sustainability. Yeah, because a lot of people, yeah, they're gung-ho in the beginning and then it's sort of on, off, on, off, on, off. Do you see like rebounds in a negative direction? Yeah, I think you definitely can. Um, I'm not really familiar with like research that's followed patients that long term. So someone who treats clinically with a ketogenic diet might be able to speak to this more um, because people often use it as a tool when they want to lose five to 10 pounds and then they go back to their normal diet. So that that's pretty common, I think. And in, in folks that are, you know, it's so popular right now and there's so much information on the internet about it. It's e- that's easily accessible. So I think people, they do experiment with it just to like lose some weight rapidly, whether it's water weight or actual adiposity is, you know, anyway, but yeah, yeah, that's, but the long-term effects of that, I don't know, you know, if that if that's a good or a bad idea. I can probably comment on that too. I I see that Mm -hmm. frequently. And whenever I'm recommending a ketogenic diet to someone who, whether they've done it in the past or whether they're doing it for the first time, I always give them the talk about this is a plan that we can try. It is challenging to sustain. It is maybe not the thing that you will do for the rest of your life. And I want to support you in working through it and making modifications if that's needed, because you can risk regaining weight if you go off and on of this type of diet. So I try to give people that understanding first and explain why the rapid regain happens, the fluid fluctuations. But um, people do struggle. They get used to eating keto and then they love all that high fat stuff, right? But then they start to want the carbs again, but they still love the fat. So that that's very common. They're like, oh, now I'm used to all the heavy cream and I want to eat the heavy cream, but I also want the pizza. (laughs) Yeah. So I kind of think, well, you, well, you can't really have it both ways. You know, I think we have to be more moderate in our approach with those fatty foods. If we want to also include some carbs and I always, I try to come back to, listen, if we want to include some of those carbs, we got to go back to a sort of calorie focused total portions focused approach to keep weight loss going. And I always try to be flexible with them. Like, look, if it's, if you want to incorporate some carbs, let's do it, but we've got to be mindful about how much overall we're eating. So it's always a negotiation. Um, but the, the effects of weight going up and down, as I understand when your weight goes down, you can lose muscle and fat, but when your weight goes up, you're mostly gaining fat. So the overall result of ongoing yo-yoing is just a net loss of muscle and more fat in terms of proportions over time. And I and slower like metabolism. Yes. And I feel I'll, like I'll also say this problem. about the ketogenic diet. And in a lot of our studies, we find that people aren't in fact losing lean mass when they go on a ketogenic diet is primarily fat. Um, you know, so like, for instance, we had a, the eight week study, we had older adults with obesity, go on a ketogenic diet and they primarily lost fat mass and preserved lean body mass. Um, so, you know, I think some other groups have shown the same thing. So it, it may not be as dangerous as we think it is for people to go on off of that particular dietary pattern. Um, That's good. But, but I was also going to say like, in terms of folks who have type two diabetes or another metabolic condition like that, that are using the ketogenic diet as like a metabolic therapy. Um, a lot of those folks, what we don't know, a lot of them do, turn it into a lifestyle and stick to it long-term because they feel so great. They don't Mm -hmm. have to take diabetes medications anymore. um, And there's a lot of benefit to that. And what we honestly like don't know from research is if they can, in fact, at some point, once they restore beta cell function, and once their A1C is down without medication, if they can reintroduce carbohydrates into the diet. So, I mean, that's a big question. I think that we just don't know yet. Yeah. yeah. And uh, once again, we'll come back when you do have the answers to that one. <laughs> you guys, I'm so sorry to do this. We are actually out of time. <laughs> it goes, I told you, it goes so incredibly fast. And I feel badly because we really have uh, hundreds and hundreds of fantastic questions, but we got through a lot. We definitely got through a lot. I want to thank everybody again for joining us. Um, we hope that you enjoyed today's session and you got a lot out of it. I know I sure did. And I want to give my tremendous appreciation to Amy and to Christine for sharing their insight and expertise and for being so generous with your time, guys. Truly, you ladies are so terrific. And we're also grateful to both of you. Thank you so much. 
So now you're going to see information about how to access your CE certificate on the screen. And I'm quickly going to walk you through it. You go to dietitianconnection.com, log into your account. It's the same email that you registered for today's webinar with. Click on the blue CE certificate button under professional development, and then you'll get your certificate from the downloads. And you'll receive today's recording information about how to access your CE certificate in that follow-up email from Dietitian Connection. And I'm pretty sure you get that within the next 24 hours. So be on the lookout. And we would love for you to let us know what you thought of today's event through the feedback survey that's going to pop up on your screen when the webinar ends. And through that feedback survey, you can also tell us the hot topics and expert speakers that you would like us to cover on future Dietitian to Dietitian episodes. Thank you once again to Amy and Christine. I mean, you guys are total rock stars. Thank you also to Fresh Avocados, Love One Today, for making today possible. And most importantly, guys, heartfelt thanks to all of you for tuning in and for making the world a healthier and happier place. Here's to good health and delicious food. We will see you next time. Bye-bye, guys. To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you, and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.